some of us find ourselves on center stage, making our living by releasing the trumpet's golden tones into the air, captivating audiences worldwide. Others among us may be more prone to engage in spirited discussions about its intricacies, its legendary players, and the unforgettable moments that have shaped its journey. But no matter our background or ability, Trumpet Dynamics is our harmonious sanctuary, a podcast that tells the story of the trumpet in the words of those who play it. A haven where we explore every facet of this wondrous instrument, delving deep into the minds and hearts of those whose energy breathes life into a simple piece of plumbing. Join us as we venture through time, tracing the trumpet's storied origins from its humble beginnings to its modern grandeur in orchestras, jazz clubs, recording studios, university halls, and beyond. Through insightful interviews and captivating anecdotes, We'll hear the wisdom and experiences of virtuosos, teachers, historians and enthusiasts alike. And now, let the symphony of trumpet dynamics commence with our founder and host, James D. Newcomb. Our guest today is the great John Daniel. He's the professor of trumpet at Lawrence University. He's planning his getaway from academia as he described it just a moment ago, and he'll describe for us in just a minute. But John, your name has come up. Uh, your ears have been tingling because your name has been mentioned a few times on the podcast recently by Del Lyron and Vinny Shashelsky. Vinny's the one that told me that I should reach out to you, and Del mentioned it. You hear it enough times, and you just say, okay, I've got to reach out to this guy. So it's good to have you, man. Why, thank you. Yeah, I, I don't know Vinny face-to-face, but during COVID, we started hanging out. And he was kind enough to spend time with my students as well and show them what he does in the music production business. And I found out we have more in common <laughs> in a lot of ways. You know, he has this thing where half his body, he has no feeling because of it's really amazing. So he's had to get very precise and technical in terms of his, how he approaches playing. He, he can't leave anything to chance. And, and so we have a lot in common in that area. I, I, I didn't really know how to play very well. I, I, my first lesson was my older brother handed me the cornet. And uh, I played piano and sang and stuff in the family. But he showed me the fingerings, played the scale for me, hands me the cornet. So what do I do? I proceed to play it on two lips, you know, like. No embouchure, no concept of embouchure, nothing like a mean face or anything like that. So, and in my case, that really held me back. Uh, I don't think it necessarily would for everybody, but it, it did. Um, Why did that hold you back? Well, essentially the way I started was very down, which is not necessarily wrong, but completely unrolled, which again is not necessarily wrong. But for me, it kept me from being able to play above the staff very well, especially anything from a high C was a stretch on that pressure. And so I would tend to set low and pull down on the lip to play the highest notes. And I could do okay that way, but it's two embouchures. And it's not, it's not efficient. To, you know, we had contests and stuff in high school. When I would go, I had no confidence. And everybody thought it was... Uh, performance anxiety issue and I guess it turned into that but it was mostly I had no confidence because I had no chops <laughs> you know why was I supposed to be confident <laughs> you know I couldn't play 10 minutes without things falling apart so that's where I don't know if Vinny told you I published a book a few years ago special special studies. yes he did mention that and it's self-published you can get it through various dealers but mostly just through myself, johndanieltrumpet.com. But that started off to be, oh, I would say user-friendly stamp, maybe. I had been play playing a lot of stamp exercises for decades, and I just couldn't, I couldn't use it with my students very well. They, they had trouble getting started. Too many of the exercises were too hard, and there were too many things you had to learn how to do before you start to even understand why you were doing them. And so I just kind of gave up on teaching out of that book as much as I loved it for myself. And but what I started doing is breaking it down into components. Like he mentions breath attacks. So I have a whole section on breath attacks, various things like that, getting from low to high with a minimum of, of motion and just efficiency in general, economy of motion, economy of technique, 
And I just had to think about these things because I I couldn't do them any other way. And I grew up in the Midwest, the United States, and everything was heavily influenced by Jacobs, Arnold Jacobs, Lyndon Song, and Bill Adam down at Bloomington IU. And their mindset is more, you might use the word gestalt, is a common way of saying it, where it's like you get the sound in your head, take a good breath, and see what you can do. And then, you know, just try to build up from easy stuff. And I'm sure that worked for a lot of people. I know it worked for a lot of people. And that's mostly what I was hearing, but it wasn't working for me. I was somehow stuck, something like that. And so when the when I'd go higher, the bottom would, would slide under over the, over the teeth. The word gestalt might be foreign to some people. Can you describe that? Well, gestalt, it's... Been, I forget who came up with it. G E S. I have to look it up, actually. T A, there's an H in there. Gestalt. G E S T A, there's an H in there somewhere in an LT. But it basically refers to the fortunate few that can see an act being done in its completed form. And just a sort of like if you've seen uh, the musical, The Music Man. You know, Music Man. It takes place in the state of Iowa, and they order this this uh, salesman comes through and, and gets them to buy horns, and he's going to teach them all how to play, but he can't. He doesn't know how. He's not a band director, but he told him that he was. But he, meanwhile, falls in love with Mary and the librarian. And so the big moment of truth comes. The instruments come, and he hands them to these kids, and, and this big moment where he's about to be exposed as the fraud that he is, he's... Okay, kids, use the think system. I can't have this big system set up. Just think about what you want to sound like and do it. That's the system. Well, they squeaked out a couple of notes that reminded people of the, of the songs they're supposed to be playing, and, and he was the hero. But that's the Gestalt system, and it works for me in very small batches. You know, like in the moment, once you've got it all worked out, of course, that's gestalt. But to learn things, my brain just doesn't work that way. <laughs> I've always had to sequence. Your issue was the, the physicality. You could have the, the best concept in your mind of what you want to sound like, but if you don't have the, the physical element squared away, then... Yeah, I agree. I think it's just luck. Yeah, if it's luck. Going just... You know, otherwise everybody with a good ear would be able to play whatever instrument they want. I don't know. We were talking about a cornet CD. Do you want to pick that up? or? Yeah, you've got a new CD coming up, and it's featuring the soprano cornet. Yeah, it's all cornet. And my idea was rather than rehashing all of the cornet rap repertoire that has been so spectacularly recorded already with brass bands and with concert bands and in some cases with piano. I don't know. I love those pieces, the debutante, you know, Norma, all, all the Arben souls. I love them all. But, you know, you look around and Jerry Schwartz recorded that stuff with Gunther Schuler producing and arranging. Winton, of course, recorded Carnival album. There's all the great British players. Phil Smith has recorded a lot of cornet souls. I, I mean, I can play them, but who needs to hear a, a Me Too moment, right? I can do it, too. So I decided to try to expand the use of the cornet amongst uh, recital players against, you know, like college teachers and their students. And um, so I'm doing all of this soprano cornet work, the Bach E-flat, Sonata, Debussy Syrinx, um, Joseph Ballone piece for flute and harp, a woman named Close Swindler posted something on that. And she had she had kind of watered it down for younger players to play and taken some things down an octave. But I, as soon as I saw it, I go, no, this is a soprano cornet piece. It's perfect. Because it makes you want to sound flute-like, right? Which I think is one of the better qualities of that. And a foray vocalist. And then a bunch of Nadia Boulanger songs on C cornet. And then on the B flat, people, you know, when, when all this public domain stuff became available, I realized that Arbenz had written a lot more solos than the ones in the back of the book. And I, I, I guess I kind of knew that, but had not really paid attention to it. I think Andre recorded La Traviata 
maybe with a full orchestra. And but there's not too many recordings of this stuff with piano. And so I thought I'm going to do Rigoletto and and uh, La Traviata. And they're different. Yeah, they're different. It's like all the best tunes from the opera and you know pick one or two of those tunes to write a variation on. But they're not as formulaic as the ones in the back of the book. And 90% of of what he wrote is easier and then the 10% that's not is just crazy hard. Really really fun. But really hard. You got to figure out your breathing. He doesn't give you obvious places to breathe or phrase. He just kind of throws two pages of 30 second notes at you and you got to deal with it. So that's occupying a lot of time right now. And then we're going to do a, a two cornet arrangement. Well, it could be trumpet, I guess, I suppose, but we're doing it on cornet of the Rite of Spring. And a friend of mine did it, Ed Hoffman, who uh, was in the Baltimore Symphony. And he's a composer and arranger, but he's retired now and doing stuff. And this was supposed to be for fun, you know, entertain yourself, drink some beer, and play through the Rite of Spring. What could be better, right? Yeah, well, my my compadre, compadre, I don't know what the right a woman teaches with me, Jesse Jensen, while I'm working my way out. And she put it on her iPad or whatever, and she has one of these fancy things that you just hit the side of your horn with the palm of your hand, and it flips pages. She's, she's got it down. It's like a choreography thing. But, you know, this thing is about 30 pages long, and no good page turns in it. And she, But she does that, and it works, and we keep playing. And we did a recital together and played out a few places last fall. Everybody liked that piece the best. There's just something, without the orchestration, you just hear the music, and you appreciate it in a different way, I guess. Right. You were talking about, before we hit record, the, the unique chat. Well, first of all, you played alongside Peter Roberts. A good 10 years. I mean, that band only got together a few times a year. We did some tours, and he was in it. Most, I, what I would consider my favorite years playing in that band, he, he was there, and Tim Morrison was playing. Woody English from the Army Band. And that's really where I developed. I'd always played cornet solos and I'd owned a cornet, but that's where I really developed the need to play it every day and a love of soprano cornet. It's such a perfect instrument in terms of the sound. And so, you know, we were talking about this, like everything that makes it sound great is what makes it hard to play. The conical nature of it and this has a fluffy kind of warmth and spready core. And, but that makes it harder to, you know, execute the registers well. And What's that, the biggest challenge between a, a B-flat cornet and an E-flat cornet? I think, you know, if, if you play a smaller mouthpiece uh, on the E-flat cornet and take some of those challenges out of it, then it, it, it starts to not sound like the cornet anymore. It starts to sound like a trumpet. And especially for... Uh, those of us on this side of the pond, we already know how to play like a trumpet. And we're going to, even with a, a wick mouthpiece or something deeper on, on a cornet, we're going to tend to make it sound like a trumpet until we know better. And a lot of it's, some of it's sound, of course. But we had British guys come over. We had Roger Webster come over and stuff. And I've sat next to them with their deep mouthpieces. And my conclusion was that, yeah, they got a deep mouthpiece, but they're playing it as bright as they can. <laughs> and all that core, which makes for a, real, a lot of depth in the sound, a really it's pretty fascinating. But I think in this country, there's tendency, because we all grew up playing a lot of commercial music, too, and a lead trumpet and all that sort of stuff. Okay, if we're having a, an issue with consistency in the upper register, we just go to something shallower. And it does the immediate problem. But it also defeats the purpose. And so, I don't know, I, I, I must have a hundred soprano chord and mouthpieces. <laughs> and I've gone every direction. I've tried everything. Really, you know, traditional wick mouthpieces and the smaller things and everything in between, you know, wider diameters, but shallower, narrower, like the 17C is still one of my favorites. That's what Peter played, a, seven, a box 17C. So. It's nearly as deep as it is wide. And that's a pretty useful approach to soprano, too, if you can do it, if your lips will let you do that. 
And so I've got a bunch of those mouthpieces too. And right now I'm kind of in between. I'm playing something Carl Hammond made that's a medium V cup. You know, I think the V kind of helps with the cornet sound. It'd be much easier maybe on an F trumpet, maybe rewrite a couple lines and play it on piccolo. But, you know, it's a flute piece. <laughs> and a Baroque. Oh, oh, oh. And so if it, if it like wooden, you know. And, so and, so so why is it why is it so important that you do it on an E flat cornet versus something that would sound a little better, play a little more in tune? I I think this it's the flute like qualities of this instrument that I love so much. There's just a hoot 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 kind of thing in the middle of the sound. It's just I, I don't know. Peter really got under my skin. I have to say. Well, first of all, it's the purest sound. Uh, of any player on any brass instrument I'd ever heard. There's, the, the sound is completely homogenous. If he wanted some something, an aura around it that was sort of something extra, that he could do that very easily, and he's famous for that. But the basic sound that he worked with was completely pure. And that's very unusual. There's usually a kind of a there's, there's a core, and then there's uh, an outer white noise, edgy kind of thing, and then maybe a halo around the whole thing. And you, you can hear layers uh, to most people's sound. And to get rid of that just requires perfect balance between, you know, great sound concept, of course, and, and, and a really good ear. But your air and your armchair have to be, I mean, how often do we hear a violinist play with a perfectly pure tone? We always hear the graininess, the And that's fine. It's fine. But every now and then somebody comes along who can make it sound like a, almost a theremin or something, like a voice. And, and we crave that. And Peter, that, that was his thing. Just perfect tone. And I just loved him and loved playing with him and loved playing octaves with him was just the best because he knew exactly the right volume and right place to p place his pitches to to sing over the band without dominating the band unless unless he felt like it at a given moment he he often had mark frost blowing into his ear the bass trombonist you know great british and so we get to the last notes of tunes and stuff and and frosty would kind of make sure peter heard him and he had a you know Frosty has a really, <laughs> you can't miss that, kind of hits you in the chest. And so Peter would just give it right back to him sometimes. And he could definitely do that, play with unbelievable power. But that's not what he did most time. Mostly he just sat there with the purest, prettiest sound and played cleaner than everybody. <laughs> and a little bit on top of the beat. So that his sound just pops. It just pops out. And I just, I learned an awful lot about everything from him. Just then he didn't talk much about how to play. And when I first met him, he wasn't really even practicing much. He didn't really need to until he lost his teeth. And then he had to start all over again. But yeah, I, the other major influence on me as far as sound was my teacher, Armando Gatala. And he could definitely, that was definitely a sound that he could make perfectly pure, like, like a... I don't know, like a Native American flute sound almost. He could do that. And I just realized from there you can play any volume level with a beautiful sound. You can, you know, it has to do with the way you set up. I think you got to have some length to your aperture. You know what I'm saying? From the teeth to the mouthpiece, there has to be a lot of surface area making sound. And, yeah, and if we just think of the aperture as a circle, then that's a two-dimensional vision. And I really think it can be more of a tunnel, and uh, that's where the real control can come from for for some of us. It's been a really important feature in my practicing to develop that cushion, you know, get the embouchure a little bit off the teeth. It has helped me a lot, but I, I, I would have to say this. We all can probably teach people to play like us. And depending on how we play and our audience, that's going to that's gonna work for a percentage of players. Now, it depends on if they're even interested in the same kind of music to some degree, but it also depends on just the natural shape of their teeth, jaw, setup. And I know that I taught that way for a long time. Just here's how I do it. Let's see if it works for you. 
And then when it doesn't work, then you pick up the pieces and try to help the other people. And I think the way I played was probably working for 60, 70% of my students, not bad batting average. But I realized something was a little off in all of this, right? Um, brass instruments are unique in, in the world of music making and acoustics in that if you're a pianist and somebody says, where's your instrument? You point at it, it's over there. If you're a singer and somebody asks you where your instrument is, it's you, your body, your, your throat. When we talk about even, even a clarinet or a saxophone, the instrument's external. You, I mean, yeah, you put, you put it in your mouth, but it's, it's not you, it's the instrument. Brass instrument is right in between, right? We make the sound with our living tissue. And so what this means is you can't tell two people to do the same thing and expect to get the same results because we're talking about different tissue. Whereas if they both have number two reeds or, you know, Ludwig 4A sticks or something, then you can tell the same thing to two people and expect to get a similar result. But with brass playing, you can't, you just can't. There's principles involved. And then they apply to everybody individually. Like just think like your teeth. Like I'm not straight. I have a little wedge here and one tooth sticks out from the other. Now, I've learned over the years that as long as I can keep my jaw out and get this tooth out a little bit, that I have trumpet teeth. I have good teeth for playing a trumpet. I can get away with a little more pressure than somebody who's playing on teeth just fresh off of brace, braces or something. And that's just been an important little element, but it keeps me from looking like everybody else. Because of my teeth, just as one example, my mouthpiece placement is determined by that, and what works for somebody else won't necessarily work for me, and vice versa. Tonguing? Oh, my God. Well, let me just give you this example. You ever heard somebody say the back of the tongue should be up as high as you can make it work? And then other people say the back of the tongue should be as low as possible in the mouth. I've been exposed to both those kinds of instructions. And I had determined that the Gatala model was, was what I was going to do, was working for me up. Where you would say H, you kind of, make a sh, you know, like a little trough there. And then the front of the tongue is what moves up and down, and in some cases forward and back to play higher and lower. But none of this E business, you know, where the back of the tongue is moving a lot. And yet you hear people talk about that all the time, of course. I remember Gatala saying the back of the tongue should be as high as possible. I've never... He said, and then, then, and then, of course, hurt this thing. It should be as low as possible. And I was talking to a friend about this, and he goes, well, you know, they're talking about the same spot. And that took a minute, but, but I saw what he meant, which is as high as is possible to sound right, not as high as physically possible. And when you factor that in, you are talking about something. But I think, like, for example, my tongue is... Um, kind of petite it's long and narrow but the roof of my mouth is cavernous it goes way up compared to some people like you can you could tell listening to Hertha speak that the you know the roof of his mouth was shallow because he just had this <laughs> overtone when he would speak and it was in his sound too it's really brilliant sound and so for him to keep his sound within reason for orchestral playing i could see where He'd have to control that space and get the tongue down. And who knows, maybe he had a big fat tongue. So the size and shape of the tongue relative to the size and the shape of, of the mouth, the oral cavity, especially the roof of the mouth, that's highly individual. And when you start talking about what you have to do to play the notes, you have to tongue from that same spot. And is that really like language? Well, a lot of that is 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 uh, customizable to the individual because you talked about how you, you can't just he listen to something, get this concept in your mind of what you want to sound like, and then expect to do it unless you know your body and how your body, in particular, responds to the instrument. Is that accurate? Well, I, yeah, I think we have to just experiment open-mindedly and and innocently and and not we. There's a lot of pedagogy out there is, in my view, not literally true. It's, if you think about 
Pavlov, what he did, right, with his dogs. So he would feed them. He'd ring a bell. After a while, they associated the bell with food, and he'd ring a bell, and they'd be hungry. Well, so he trained in this stimulus response pattern that has no literal meaning. And we do the same thing with trumpet. All the brass instruments. Put more air through the horn. Is that really what we do to play? Uh, I, I, I don't know if you've investigated or not, but it's definitely not. More air through the horn means a more airy sound. If you're physically, I mean, I get it. The attempts to engage with the instrument a little more consistently and vigorously is going to make us play better. And that's why we keep saying, right? Because it works. It's not literally true, right? The air that goes into the instrument is a byproduct of what we're doing. And, you know, there's even guys showing it. You could go out the side of the mouthpiece. doesn't matter. It doesn't have to go through the horn at all. Just needs to get past the lips. But for example, when I'm warming up, you know, I can feel that air an arm's length away. But then when I go to play, now with the just kind of a normal sound buzz, I have to get about there to feel any air. And if I really focus on the kind of buzzing I like, take these out for a second. I'm, I have to almost touch the metal to feel the air coming out. And you might say, well, that's too soft. If I do that into, you know, we, <laughs> this is just my philosophy for whatever it's worth, but we can play the horn without playing the mouthpiece, right? If you blow through the mouthpiece, you feel the impedance of the mouthpiece. You add the trumpet, you're adding some impedance. Not a lot, a little. The question then becomes, do you want to add the instrument? To that or to this? Right? I'm just blowing air and, and hoping the trumpet will resist the air enough to create a sound. Both philosophies work. Both are a little bit dependent upon equipment to work optimally. But I, a number of years ago, switched over to playing all shilky, which, especially Reynolds' original designs, are open, more open slotting. They don't have the firm slots that have become so popular with, we have the, with CNC lathes and such, we have the possibility of engineering to higher tolerances than ever before. And we do, right? Valves are tighter than they've ever been, right? The problem with this, in my view, is that it makes instruments slot more firmly. And most people like that because it turns trumpet playing more into piano playing. Where, okay, here's the note. You have to play it like this. It's the only way you can play it. It's, just, it's slotted for you. Here's the slot, you play that. And the heaviest slotting instruments will, will do that. They're in a sense easier to play as long as you're willing to accept the sound and the pitch that it's giving you. If you're trying to fight with that, it's a different set of muscles that do it than on most instruments, you know. And I just determined a long time ago, I want to play the mouthpiece like humming, right? So it's like humming, very quiet, very pure. so on and so forth. So I can do that a bunch of repetitions um, because I'm not using that much air. I'm efficient with it. But doing under the horn, that's not that soft. Pure tone on the mouthpiece will translate into, you know, mezzo forte on the trumpet. If I want to play really quiet, I have to let a little air into the buzz. And I would rather negotiate things that way than have to find core. Suddenly, like, what happened to my core? I need core. It's easy to give core away, right? 
And to me, the mouthpiece sound being generating the sound of the instrument is what it is is the is what I would refer to as core in the sound. That's a very subjective term, I guess. But okay. something that I have used as an illustration for this, and I want to get your thoughts on this because I trust your judgment on this more than my own. But if trumpet is a lot or like when you're playing trumpet, <clears throat> you're communicating things, various things. And when you're speaking a certain thing in a different situation, you're not going to use the same amount of air. Like if I am in a romantic situation with my wife and I'm saying, I love you, I'm not going to take a deep breath and say, <gasps> you know, but, but if she's at the train station, she's like going to leave me and I'm never going to see her again. And I have two seconds to win her favor back. I'm going to take that deep breath and say, <gasps> I love you. Yeah, so it's, I, it's very situational. No, that's a good point. And I think, my father was a singer, and I remember he gave me my first voice lesson when I was five. It started with a breathing lesson. And I still use the same technique that he showed me. And I've just found that talking to singers, the ones who are very technically minded in their teaching, they understand the anatomy way better than we do because there's been just more research done on this because everybody has a voice, you know, than, than on trumpet tone production. But they know a lot more about it. And just, you know, the idea that the pelvic floor can release and relax and drop, and that that's actually the source of creating the most space for air. That was the way I was taught. And every time I tried to do something else, it just not worked out as well. And I've still got you know, I'm 66. I still got six liter capacity. I I don't use it in the sense of taking a big breath every time I play. That doesn't really work for me. But I do like the idea of getting enough air in with no tension. And so sometimes expanding our our comfort zone in terms of how much air we can get in allows us to get in the right amount of air more quickly with less effort, and probably helps with our sound. I mean, tension really kills tone, doesn't it? It does. Um, it kills a lot of things. Yeah, it kills a lot. <laughs> yeah, right, right. But, like, I remember watching Chickowitz, Vince Chickowitz teach a master class, and he came over to one of my students, and they're playing, and he just grabbed their elbow and started moving it. And, of course, the younger player particularly, it doesn't want to move. It's tight, right? And he kept reminding him and kept showing him to get that, those arms loose and playing, and his sound just opened up so much. Of course, there's an issue with younger players. You get the body to relax, and the embouchure wants to relax, too. they got to learn how to disassociate this from everything else. And uh, that's the key to trumpet playing. It's a big key, I think. You know, keep the tension where you need it. And don't let anybody tell you where that is. got to figure that out for yourself. Exactly. Yeah. Um, What's it like? What's it like to be in the the brass band? Because that's like world class musicians. What's that atmosphere? Well, yeah, 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 yeah. That's the first thing. I was blown away. I was asked to play. My I had a couple of colleagues. I was at Penn State at the time, and they were in the band because they had Michigan ties. It started off as just kind of a, you know, fun thing for people in Michigan to do, and they ended up getting all the best players, and they wanted all their friends. And so I ended up, I had been in school at Michigan, so I was kind of a Michigan person. So this is the very beginning of Brass Band of Battle Creek when they cared where you were from. And so I was doing, I started doing that. I remember the first time I showed up, somebody in the soul, I was going to play second cornet, had my parts sorted. I think we were doing Gregson, harmony music. And I get there and one of the solo cornet players, his back went out, he couldn't, couldn't sit up. And so they just handed me, you know, the second, second solo parts. You know what that's like, because, you know, sometimes there's three, you've got to figure out. That was my, I'm sitting between Woody English and I think Vinny DiMartino and trying to deal with this. And I'd never been in a brass band before. <laughs> it was just completely overwhelming and amazing. And, you know, if you the first time you experience brass band music, especially the uh, test pieces, contest pieces from inside the band, as they say, it's gobsmacking, right? It's just, it, it's, it's just, 
It's unbelievable. And I fell in love with it right away. And that was before Peter was in the band. I think they realized at some point we needed a British player. And in the early days of the brass band, we had a lot more of a British sound because we had Billy Rushworth on tenor horn. And Steve Mead's been in the band from the beginning, but they were using more, they were playing the way they played at home. When Peter got in the band, he played the way he played at home. So we had these solo instruments situated around the band that would come out with this traditional vibrato for certain things. And then, but they were totally cool leaving it out. And so the band had, has this breadth of palette that I think is, is, was astonishing. I remember we went over to Royal Albert Hall and played for the British. We didn't compete, but we played while they tallied everything up. This would have been about 92 or 93. The test piece was Moon Over Mexico. I remember that, Philip Spark, because he had written in for the audience to turn the page at the same time. And they did. And it was just like, I had no idea about this contesting thing. And I saw all that. And it was just like, whoa, these British are really nerdy and geeky about banding. And, and I was just, I just, I, I, I loved it. As much as I don't really think music is about competing, I, I just think the intensity of it, there's something about it that, uh, yeah, it has its place. And it, yeah, that's, I think that's just the best way to put it. And my experience, of course, in, in Battle Creek is we never contested. We, we would go, like we went to North America, Naba, and and played, but only as a, as a feature, you know, for entertainment. And I, I did compete in this group in Iowa with them. They, they put together a group called Tall Grass. And that was my first thing. You know, my first performance on E flat cornet was, oh, Flowerdale. When, yeah. I feel very lucky to have played it as well as I did because, you know, I play through it occasionally now and it never goes any better. So <laughs> it just, it went really well. And I'm like, I didn't know. And then right after that, we went to Anaba and played, oh, Oh, that Tchaikovsky piece. What is that? Extreme Makeover. Yeah, and the and yeah, as you know, those solo cornet or the E flat cornet parts are crazy. You know, just filled with high Ds, and and then you know, Walk of Shame solos that you have to play right after that. That are just, you know, I always manage to get them play, and then whoever the judge is will say, well, you know, that's doesn't sound like a cornet. It sounds like a trumpet. I know. At least it sounds like a trumpet playing the part, you know. <laughs> at least it sounds. At least it sounds. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's the best I could do at the time, and on those crazy parts, you know. And so, in order to have that skill set around when I needed it, that's when I decided, right, I've got to use this thing for more stuff. I developed recital repertoire around it. I also have used it a lot in brass quintet. It's fabulous for, well, like Ewald Fourth uh, Quintet. Oh my God, it's the E flat part, and it's just perfect for it. Right, way well, better. The brass it. band, the brass band scene over in Britain, as I understand it, and I I haven't been there, but they're really fanatical to the point where all you can do you can you can have a career playing only cornet, right? But here in America, if you play trumpet, then you do. You might do a brass band once here and there, but it's something, it's it's like an additional hat on top of 10 that you're already, like 10 plates you're already spinning. It's another plate well, to spin. I think it's, it, you know, I think the brass band in Battle Creek has helped, frankly. It's popularized brass banding in the United States. And I think we're very well received during a tour of England and they appreciated the crossover element playing more swing and and even Motown and things like that, because they recognize that the movement, at least in England, had become so insular that it's, yeah, it's ever popular amongst an ever shrinking audience, you know? And, and so that was the idea is that this is probably a good thing, do more pops type things. And, and so it's, a lot of people know about banding now, you know, in the United States and love it. I've been warming up on a cornet every day now for, oh, 25 years, I would say. I don't warm up on, I, I, I feel like 
the control and the steady and gentle nature of the air and the vibration for cornet translates to trumpet and rather than the other way around. I mean, frankly, trumpet's more forgiving, at least for me, because I grew up on it probably, but it, it's, it's more forgiving. And so by warming up on cornet, I can pick up my C trumpet, I can go to E flat cornet, I can go to B flat trumpet. I've got everything set up, Shilke, medium bore, 450 bore, everything. From piccolo down to cornet, I play the, the 450 bore. So I don't have that difference between, you know, when I put this in here, it knows, it knows what's going to happen. And so I can just really approach everything from playing it on the mouthpiece, sticking this thing in front of it and making sure the right valves go down, and, but not worrying so much about it. If it's in D or C or E flat or F or whatever it might be in, I'm playing the mouthpiece primarily up to a point. You know, we're not mouthpiece players, but and I think the trumpet allows a wider palette of sound than the mouthpiece. But I, I want it all, you know. <laughs> you so, they're, so they're currently searching for your successor there at Lawrence University, correct? They, they posted it, and I think I know some people have put in their their hat in the ring and it's you know i've adopted not my circus not my monkeys attitude you know i mean i've got all my best friends on that committee and and they might ask my opinion but i i don't know what's best for the school i know what i felt like was best for the school i i play jazz and the school is a very strong jazz school as well as classical and routinely when multiple downbeat awards every year and so a, a large part of my studio has been jazz emphasis uh, uh, majors or people particularly good at it and interested in it and i've liked the idea of it's the same set of lips that goes to orchestra that, that then goes to jazz band and so to have two different teachers doing it doesn't make a ton of sense to me but most schools do that i learned that way i had jazz teachers and i had uh, classical teachers, and they, you know, I just had to figure out what to learn from each one and put it together myself. But I, I see the benefit in in having one person do it all. I don't know if they'll go that direction. They could split it up, have a classical person, and then have a more of an adjunct person doing the jazz. The person who is teaching with me now half time, her husband is also a good friend and a good. He's a good jazz player and a good jazz composer and they've been my sabbatical replacement as a team a couple times and they'll they'll apply as a team and then you know there's just so much so much talent in in this country it's just a matter of yeah and, and, are they going to hire somebody at entry level we're states we're not a state school so we we're more open we're a private school we can do whatever we want to do we can do we just have to convince you know people what we want to do so I don't know what's going to happen. I'm going to try not to care. I'm, I'm, I'm my CD done and then go out and do recital tours. Try to get that whole program memorized and run around and play recital tours. And when is the CD going to release? I'm sorry. When will the CD release? I I hope to have it recording done in December. We've done we've done some editing already. The mixing. We haven't really messed with that yet. I I wouldn't be surprised if we're if we're looking at January first, but you know if I don't get it done by January first, it won't happen until the summer because of teaching schedules. But okay, so either January or July. Yeah, well, and it's I, I I'm old school. I want an actual physical product because it was conceived as a as a as a album concept. You know, all cornet solos trying to expand the recital repertoire that we enjoy. And uh, I don't dribbling out one at a time on Spotify doesn't make sense to me. I don't know. I mean, we're selling more LPs than CDs now. <laughs> and and I don't I don't think very many of my students own a CD player, but I think it's what I want to do. And what's the name of the album? I have that I haven't gotten that far. Oh, you haven't even named it yet. Uh, if you think of something, let me know. Okay. But you know, it's got these two guys and my C cornet. I'm not sure where nice. it's where it's hiding. Join join the Trumpet Dynamics Facebook group and let John 
know your suggestions. You just okay. joined the group. This I will. Morning. I just joined it today. I thanks to Vinny because I didn't. I you know there's a lot of people doing these podcasts, but you've been at it for a while. Yes, this one started uh, seven years ago, eight years ago. You just did Chris Body again. Yeah, Chris Bodie. And how, how did how did that go? I haven't had a chance to check it out, but he seems to be very very able to articulate his positions. Interviewing Chris is like riding a bucking bronco in the rodeo. He's a very type A personality. He he he's just a a go getter. He's a natural leader. Wonderful person. Tremendous player. Anybody that thinks that he is Kenny G on a trumpet, I'm sorry, we can't be friends. He's a wonderful oh. player. You know, his show is the, he needs to play within himself, right? The jazz thing is taking bigger risks. And he's carved out this career for himself that involves playing very, yeah, playing very pretty and very well all the time. And, you know, even a guy like Doc Severinsen could, could hide a little bit of slop if he needed to in, in the middle of all of what he was doing. Uh, it didn't happen very often, but if it did, you notice. With Chris, the way he plays, he's highlighting the beginning, the middle, and the end of every note. I mean, everything's a love affair. And I, I love hearing people play that way. Who cares what it is? It's, it's good phrasing is the main thing. Very effective. Yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah, we had Vinny. We had Bobby Medina and Paul Barron recently. Del Lyron, who I think mentioned you in his interview. Those are the most recent ones. We just kind of got back on the bandwagon this summer, and hopefully this time we're going to stick with it with a weekly basis. But, yeah. I, just... I, I've learned a lot. You know, Paul and uh, Bobby do one, and I did one with them. I was one of the very first ones because Paul, Paul's come through town playing shows, various shows, and we've hooked up, and he likes my book and whatnot. So we just... I don't know. We're I'm a little older than him, but we have they mentioned you too. They mentioned you yeah. too. So we have a lot of the same stories, and yeah. you know, played with a lot of the same people and all that. So we get along great. And uh, yeah, I I need to you know they had a podcast with uh, a couple of people who had been exploring the Doc Reinhardt system, and of course I was exposed to it a few times, but particularly when I lived in Pennsylvania constantly running into people who had studied with him and he's just you know super nerdy geeky observant person and it appeals to me even if he's wrong about all of it i don't care it still appeals to me it's like okay i'm gonna pay attention to that you know he has seven different tongue types and a couple of them are quite strange like no that can't possibly be right and he goes well i only saw it three times in my career but it wasn't going to change that's what it's supposed to be. You know, something weird like tongue coming the wrong direction or something. People tongue, but you know, some people are supposed to tongue between the teeth, according to Reinhardt. And then a lot of people tongue in the gully with the tip behind the lower teeth and then use the top of the tongue a little bit. That's the way Gatala taught us. So use the, use the top, don't use the tip. Uh, unless you're playing legato super fast and have to use the tip. Don't use the tip because it doesn't sound as good. Like they like you to tongue from the top of the tongue, and you know if I'm up high enough, then the tip of my tongue is, you know, pushing against my lower lip, and so I'm have to do some sort of modified anchor tongue. But here's the weird part for me. Depending on my strength level on a given day, that tongue position is going to be a little different on notes and I have to learn how to tongue from that position on those notes no matter what and you know before I started playing soprano cornet I could go weeks and not worry really too worried about that on soprano cornet you're constantly dealing with that exact spot in the register you know just above the staff on an E flat A's B flats B C's and in that area if your tongue it needs to be in a slightly different spot from day to day based on your strength level. It really complicates what we're doing technically. And that's where I've been the last five years of dealing with that and just trying to get strong enough to get over the hump where that's not a problem up to, you know, C or D, written C or D. 
I just, it's, I have a little break there. I have an, another octave above that, but that concert D E flat area, you know, just holding my mouth right to, to get every note to speak cleanly and clearly doing chromatic scale stuff. I have to practice a lot. I, I, I mean, I, I wish I could sit here and tell you it came naturally, but very little what I can do. I, I think some of the musical parts came quicker. My dad was a singer, so he had us singing in four and five parts when I was five years old. I was singing Tis the Month of May and stuff like that. And we were solfeging. And then when I started uh, playing the trumpet, my older brother played trumpet. So this is in the 60s. We immediately had a Herb Alpert band and played community events and stuff like that. So my ear was pretty good. Um... I had a sense of balance from singing in harmony and, and, and blending, you know, a family of voices tends to blend really well. So I had a sense of all that. I played piano so I could sight read. The weird thing that happened for me was I, <clears throat> I was into math and chemistry and physics. <clears throat> so I was working with symbols all the time. I remember being very frustrated with chemistry. The teacher was old and senile and, and, and I just couldn't figure out the symbols. And then along came chord symbols. Perfectly logical. Make perfect sense. Right? And and so I immediately could play. I knew my scales. I knew what that half diminished chord meant. I knew what notes to choose from. I'd listened to jazz a lot. So I could immediately play jazz, although it was a little bit more theory-based than it was ear-based. So I, I had some talents in some ways. But this thing always had the best of me. And uh, I had to figure out virtually everything about it, um, to, at least to my own satisfaction. Now, yes. I, I've, never, I've never heard someone have such a distinct difference in experience between trumpet and cornet. I had to. I, I, well, let me just boil it down. I think the main things, yeah, the sound is different. I think you want to, the bowl-shaped cornet mouthpieces that we use over here are, are going to sound a little trumpety, especially with the articulation. A, a good player can use them. And I didn't mind, I used them on Repiano because I needed to sound brighter to match with soprano. But I don't know that I would do that anymore. I like, I've, I've kind of embraced the, not necessarily wick, but something, you know, V-shaped and deeper. I, I, on my B-flat, I use a, a Hammond L. It's like a 1C, but it's, it's he likes V-shaped cups. And so it's a deep V. Probably not as deep as a wick, but it's deep enough, I, I think, for, what, for, what, for solo playing. But I think the main thing is you back off with sound. You got to play lighter. You definitely tongue lighter. Trumpet tonguing is a big problem. Unless you're playing an overture and that's what you're trying to do, you want to you want to get the tongue in a different space. I think for cornet playing, one of the things that I was doing a lot of baroque trumpet playing at one time, and you know the Fantini book from. 1515 or whenever it was, he talks about turry dury durries and L's and N's and all that stuff, and you think that can't be right. But you mess with it, and it kind of does work. And I noticed from there, I could triple tongue faster if I started thinking nenunga, 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 instead of dedaga, 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 and things like that. Uh, so I discovered that a lighter stroke can really help with it sounding more cornet-like. You just, I don't know, Peter had... Peter had the whole thing, and when he had a pointed attack, it was extremely pointed. But to me, that was a British kind of affectation, brass band affectation, or maybe a Peter thing. I didn't try to copy that. He, he, he doesn't, he didn't ever use a throat cutoff. So everything was either a long tone with the air tapering or dit, a lot of dit or dot or whatever. So it 
And I sing it so poorly that it sounds like a bad idea, but he's so dead center in the middle of every note. It sounds amazing. Uh, but I don't know that anybody else can quite do that. Uh, it's kind of an old school tonguing thing. So I didn't, I wouldn't try to copy that. I'd be more interested in copying Roger or, you know, somebody from the B-flat cornet as far as the tonguing. Uh, like, I don't know, if I get trumpety tonguing would be... Right, you can hear spot. You can hear space between the notes. And I think... I like that better for cornet playing. It's more like mandolin or something. To me, it's just more melodic and interesting and it wouldn't get tired. You don't have to cut through an orchestra. You're a soloist. Right? Why are we tonguing so hard? Um, so that's those are some of the main things, I think, is just play softer and tongue lighter. And, you know, God, you, you listen to that Jerry Schwartz record? Not that dark, but it sure is elegant. I, I think some of the desire to play the really big Dennis Hort mouthpiece is, is is really driven by banding, not not by soloing. And and while those players are the ones that are recording some solos, they might be doing that too. You know, Hawking didn't sound that way on his cornet. Phil Smith doesn't sound that way on his cornet. You know, he has a you know, you can't complain about his sound, right? It's unbelievable. 1C cornet mouthpiece. It's not, it's not a wick. It's just a 1C cornet mouthpiece. But that's because that's what he needed in orchestra, and that's what he grew up playing. And it was never too... You know, there's, I don't know if Salvation Army banding is that much different than British brass band banding. I have a feeling it's... Um, got some differences in terms of uh, history and culture and, and even equipment to some degree and, and sound concept to some degree. His son is bright, you know, no edge, of course, and plenty of depth. But uh, you can tell when it's a cornet versus a trumpet with Phil. Yeah, but how, how can you tell? I'm curious about this because I'm, I'm always, you know, it's I way, just know. I, I, yeah, I, I don't know how, how I can tell. your opinion on this? How do you I think... Don't, I can't explain how I know. I just know. Like he has that album, the um, the where he's it's like what is it? The um, he's holding his trumpet up at an angle. It's he plays Gershwin and the uh, like the trumpet ensemble. Do you know which one I'm talking about? I think so. But he plays someone to watch over me, the Turin arrangement. Oh yeah. And I listen to it. I I know it's a cornet, but I also know that it's not a deep cup cornet. But I know it's a cornet. You just know. Like Winton. It's it's interesting, isn't it? It comes at you, and maybe this is just translating what we see into some sort of subjective description, but it's a little fatter. It's a little less spoken. But it's also... It's a, it's a smaller sound in a certain way. I Not this... I, I, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to describe, and it, the big challenge is to make sure in recordings you can capture that. Chris Gecker used the word compact. Yes, I think that's very, very true. Compact and fat. It's kind of a stocky sound, a little bit the way it looks. And we all know what we're talking about, but I think it's very easy in recordings for some of that to get lost. I think it's kind of the way the sound travels through space. That makes a cornet so obviously different than a trumpet. And if everything's close, Mike, you might lose some of that. Um, you don't have to, of course, but it's possible. I don't know. I, I, I'm sitting here in Alpton, Wisconsin, doing the best I can. Right? <laughs> you know? Uh, well, somebody will send me an email who knows more than I do, and they'll say, no, that was a trumpet on Phil Smith's Someone to Watch Over Me. So what do I know? <laughs> well, that's a beautiful tune and played any better or more heartfelt than he does. And I did hear his group in Georgia. He was They started a brass band at, at University of Georgia. And I think this kind of started when he wasn't, he was 
trying to get his playing back together. He had had some dystonia stuff. And I was, so he was kind of not performing too much. And so he started this band and boy, they sound good. Boy, I mean, it's not hard stuff. It's more Salvation Army type stuff, but they phrase together, the whole band phrases together. The whole band. Yeah. I'm sorry. Well, it doesn't have to be super complex and technical for it to be great music. Yeah, he's he's a great musician. There's no question he's, about that. He's one of the greats. And uh, there's some gestalt in there, I think. You know, he he grew up with his dad, who's fantastic, Derek, fantastic player, fantastic bandsman. And his father's idea was, we're going down the basement, and your job is to sound just like me. And his father being intuitive about these things just made sure he's playing something reasonable nothing not too hard if we do this enough times he'll get it and he'll sound just like me and that was what they did till he was 17 or 18 and then he got into juilliard and was more on his own but there's a lot of gestalt in there right and that's that's a problem for me in the sense that the best players get the best students and, and are the famous teachers and everybody listens to what they say when they may not have had to break it down and they may not have that much to say about how to play. That doesn't mean they can't teach around that. You know what I'm saying? I'm sure he does extremely well. It's just that, that, that didn't work for me for whatever reason. I just, you know, good luck or bad luck or however you want to put it, but that's just not me. I had to get in there under the hood. Um, so well, no, a- nobody, nobody came off of a conveyor, conveyor belt. Yeah. Everybody has their own preferences. Yeah, I don't think it works for brass instruments. Uh, Everybody do things the same way. I don't get into a lot of pedagogical arguments anymore because of that. I I believe what I believe, but I, yeah, it's just pretty individual. I don't even discuss it that much on this show because. Really? Not really, because I, I have my way of playing and it works. And the case is closed in my book. I'm more interested in the stories and the, the why people do it. But do you do, a, do you do a lot of teaching? Not really. Okay. So Podcast, podcasting is my, my jam. So. Yeah. Because one of the things that's difficult when you're teaching is if you ask somebody to do something fairly simple, just make it sound like this, and they're not able to, especially as beginners, then you've dug a hole. It's just much better to do. Pick this up and blow air through it. Good job. And then, and then go through sequences where they can be successful with every sequence. And you can see the problems I've already created in the minds of, of some pedagogues. But you don't want people thinking about stuff like that. And I'm just like, well, we're all different. I can think about my lips and play trumpet at the same time. I, I've trained myself to do that. We're, you know. That's what we do. So I don't know. Well, somebody else can start a podcast on trumpet pedagogy. I'm just not the person to do well, it. Well, you're not the one to do it. Okay. Well, I think, I think Bobby and Paul have covered a lot of pedagogy. I've, you know, for teachers, I like that because you never know. Somebody's going to walk into your office and have a problem you've not encountered before. Mm-hmm. But that's the. Or, if, or if they, you, you do know exactly how to fix it. It's just. For this person, they're not hearing it. They won't let you fix it that way. And so you got to find another way. Right. But if I had a student who had an issue, I would have them listen to that podcast about whatever topic. I've listened to a lot of podcasts because you're always, I'd rather learn from somebody else's mistakes (laughs) than my own. Put it that way. Right. That's a wonderful medium. I love it. Well, uh, sadly, John, we're we're out of time, and we have to uh, cut this short. I, I, I can I can fill up an hour pretty quickly. Sorry. That's okay. But we've been speaking with John Daniel. He's the trumpet professor at Lawrence University. He's got a cool album coming out to be named to be announced. JohnDanielTrumpet.com. com. Check right. him out. And he's also this author of special Trumpet studies book. special the, studies for trumpet. The trumpet is a torch. See okay. the shape of the bell, I see it. torch, I see it. light coming out, of it, and it's up to us to lead the way. All right. <laughs> Trumpet hubris. I love it. Thank you, John. Thank you. It's great meeting you. 
Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Dynamics, telling the story of the trumpet in the words of those who play it. For more captivating episodes and exclusive content, visit our official website at trumpetdynamics.com. You can dive deeper into the interviews, discover additional resources, and connect with your fellow trumpeters. Also be sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform and even leave a rating and review. It really helps with the visibility of the show. Until we meet again, may your fingers be fluid, your breath unimpeded, and your chops ever fresh. Play hard.